Oh, I do not know Steve. I'm young enough to be mentored by him, I'm pretty sure of that. But <laughs> Now, now, <laughs> the pastor who mentored me said, be careful of the, the head pastor, because he's the one who gets the mic last. But we, uh, we really sure do, uh, did hit it off that day. And even as we have sung, Christ being ours is the reason. Uh, you know, it, uh, there's not a lot of practical reasons for me to be here in northern Wisconsin or northern Iowa with you. <laughs> I ministered in northern Wisconsin for a lot of years, but, uh, but anyways, I'm, I've been looking forward to this privilege and opportunity to open up God's word. Uh, it truly do count it a privilege, and so thanks to Pastor Phil and the staff of IRBC. We pray for you regularly, and uh, we are excited about what God's doing here, and we're ec- excited to be able to be a part this week. My wife, Sarah, and then my kids, Josiah. Zachary, Caleb, Luke, and then our daughter Haven, we're all here. We'd love to interact with you. So if you see us around, uh, just stop us, introduce yourself. Uh, We'd love to interact and and, uh, talk with you and get to know you better. Uh, That is our intention here this week. Uh, A couple of my guys are here, my staff members, uh, co-pastors that we're laboring together. Uh, Stephen Choi and Andy are here. And so if you see a bunch of really, really small half-Asians, those belong to my brother. He's 10 years younger. The (laughs) bigger ones are mine. So... We're we're glad to be here. Turn with me to Ruth, the book of Ruth, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and uh, I'm going to have you open up uh, Ruth chapter 1, and we are going to attempt something that I probably should not do in five sessions, try to walk through all four chapters of Ruth, but we'll uh, go as far as we can and as the Lord will allow. But let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll walk through this section this uh, evening. I entitled this section of the text, Each story matters to God. Each story matters to God, and you'll see why here in a moment. But Ruth 1 begins, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into this country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord's blessing? Father, we come uh, in the quietness of the moment acknowledging that you are God and that we are not. That if it was not for Christ and him crucified and risen, if it was not for faith in him alone, we not only would reject everything that the word declares about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but Father, we would continue to live after our own pursuits, not looking to the future and what you have for us, even as our theme is for the week. We would look and make life all about our momentary things, our circumstances, the relationships and the rifts that oftentimes happen, the things that are victories in our lives and failures, and we'll let all those things define us. But when by faith you opened our eyes to the person of Christ, for those who have trusted in him this evening, you changed everything, not just our eternal destiny, but our immediate now. And so even as we spend the moments here in Ruth, May your word declared be used by the Spirit of God who knows the deep things of God. 
make Christ known, that we would see him afresh, that we would know him more, that this week would be, again, another step that is taken in our process of knowing and loving you, and that, Father, then we would live to the glory of the God who alone is worthy. And so use this time, and in all of it, may your name be honored. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. As we come to this text of Scripture, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate, really, this introductory section, and I thought of the um, illustration of aging. I just turned 40 this year, and so I am firmly entrenched in my middle-aged years. I actually enjoy it. I'm thankful for it. I do not have any desire to go back to my teenage years, though they were fine, and my 20s were okay, right? 30s was better, but I am thankful. And actually, when I look in the mirror, that's probably the time that I'm the most shocked by what I see, you know, because I picture myself in a certain way, right? And then every morning I wake up and I go to the mirror and I'm like, whoa, who's that guy? He looks like his dad, not like me, right? Wrinkles start to form and, and you know, I'm not as light as I used to be. And Aging's hard sometimes, isn't it? But on another side, aging is great. Aging is glorious. Like those wrinkles that you try to, ladies, use your cream, don't do it. It's glorious. And the reason it's glorious is because it constantly reminds you that you are not redeemed for this life alone. It constantly reminds you that though circumstances and hardship hit our lives, as Moses says in Psalm 90, our lives are filled with toil and trouble, it is entrusted to us by a sovereign God who is working. And he's doing something that is so much bigger than what you and I want him to do. If we're honest, we want a Christianity that where we can go and rub a lamp, Jesus would pop out and he would grant us three wishes. That's what we want. We want a Jesus or a God who will cater to what we want. But scripture is replete time and time again in Old and New Testament that God calls the people unto himself. That God is about himself and rightly so. And he is desirous to use all of these individuals, not for their individual purposes and function, but he wants to use them for his collective glory being made known among the nations. And that's where we jump into the book of Ruth. Just like aging sometimes stinks, in this story that is unfolding before us, we see a lot of things that just don't humanly add up. And so within this text of Scripture, I'd really like to draw out for us this evening that though you and I do not go through life unscathed, we also do not go through life alone. And within this text, he's going to continue, the author, and we're not really told who the author is. There's lots of debate as to who this is, and we're not going to get into all of that, the dating of it and when that was. If you want to talk about that, I'd be glad to geek out about that with you later, maybe during coffee or something like that. But at the same time, here within this text, Paul, or this author again, in, is writing in Ruth and lays out the truth that we do not go through life unscathed, but it, we also do not go, uh, go through life alone. Alistair Begg, when he speaks of Ruth, made, made mention of this statement. He said, when God is at work, even hopelessness may be a doorway to fresh starts and to new opportunities. And so as we begin and we jump into the narrative of Ruth, this is really, we're smack dab in the middle of a story. And that story begins in 1-1, in a context. If you see there in Ruth 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Obviously, you know that the book of Ruth follows the book of Judges. 
When you think of the book of Judges, you're, that's probably not the place you go to look for biblical names for your children, right? Because what you find within the book of Judges is every man is doing that which is what? Right in his own eyes. And God calls up different judges, both men and women, to call Israel to repentance, not only to again see their God for who he, he is, but to line up with what he calls them not only to do, but to be. A people called out by him unto himself for his eternal purposes. But these people are constantly going back to the way of Egypt and the way of their own hearts. That's what we, this is the context. It is during the days when the judges ruled. This is not one of those times, if you're maybe old enough to remember, you remember Superbook, the old cartoon, where you kind of go rewind and you jump into the middle of a Bible story? This is not the story you want to go to. You want to go to like Red Sea. You want to go to like Moses being born. You want to go to like, like the walls of Jericho falling down. You do not want to go when it's during the time of the judges. This is like being dropped off in the center of some war-torn place or some ghetto place where every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. You don't want to be here. It's a dangerous place. But yet, within this dark story and time period in Israel's history, the author unfolds for us another story within the story. He places this narrative smack dab in the middle of the time of the Judges. But it's not just the time of the judges, the author says here in one one. but he tells us that there's a famine in the land. Well, where is the land? Good question. The land is in Bethlehem. Now again, if you know anything about uh, names and meanings, you very quickly understand what the name Bethlehem means. The name Bethlehem simply means house of bread. Isn't that ironic? Here is the story unfolding. There's, there, it's the time of the judges. There is famine in the land. And the place in which God is going to use inspired scripture to tell us this story about Naomi and Ruth and Orpah and, and Boaz, it's in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and they have no bread. Like, as the author begins, you as the reader, you and I as the reader, ought to start to layer the weightiness of what's going on. Feel it. Don't just read it. Within this narrative, you should be understanding, oh, time of the judges. Every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. God actually judges them by sending men and women who come to judge them and bring punishment upon them because of their disobedience and them whoring themselves off to other gods. That's the context. The house of bread has no bread. There's a famine in the land, and all of a sudden we're introduced to a man who's from Bethlehem in Judah, and this man actually does something. And what we find as this narrative is unfolding is that there are two things that really jump out to us. Within this text of this whole point of the fact that we do not go through life unscathed, but we also do not go alone. These two truths jump out at us and it's on our outline. Verses 1 and 2 lay out for us the truth that we all have a story. The author's not minimizing the story. But he's going in almost rapid succession to give us the facts of what's going on. What's interesting, as we'll see within the narrative, is that the author does not condemn both Elimelech and um, Naomi and their family's activity. Like, when you and I think of a man of Judah who is in Bethlehem, leaving because there's a famine, to go north to Moab, to an idol-worshipping nation, what do you think? What do I think? That's a no-no. I don't care if there's a famine in the land, right? 
the people of Israel do not leave the nation of Israel to go to a foreign land, that is like, no, no, no. But then we find out later that his sons, after he dies, what do did, what did they do? They marry Moabite women. And you would think the author would go, hey, in the days of the judges, right, when they were ruling, there was a famine in the land, and there was this man named Elimelech who leaves, and he go, he's from Bethlehem, and there's no bread there, but he sojourns, and he goes to the country of Moab. And he shouldn't have done that. I can't believe that rascal. Why in the world would Elimelech leave the people of God and the land that God had given to them to go to a foreign land where there would be foreign gods? And look it. Elimelech made these choices, and later, after he dies, because there's no more father in the picture, they go and marry Moabite women. And not only do they marry Moabite women, but they're going to have children, potentially. That was actually accurate to what we could say from the Old Testament. And yet, the author does none of it. Be careful when you and I read Scripture not to impose what you and I are thinking into the text. The author just goes successive. Time of the judges, right? He goes... Famine in the land. There was a man of Bethlehem, of Judah. He leaves because there's a famine in the land, and he sojourns. The language sojourn there has the idea of traveling with the intention of staying for a short period of time. But we actually find that he doesn't sojourn. He stays, and actually the text tells us he remains there. But not one time does this author condemn the actions of Elimelech, Naomi, or even the words that they speak. Now, we can get into a discussion later about the theology of all of it. All the only, and I'm not saying condoning them, okay? But what I am saying is the text doesn't condemn them. Are you with me? Okay, so here, this is what's unfolding. And really, the first point draws this out for us, that we all have a story. We're very much like Elimelech and Naomi. We're very much like Malon and Kilion. We are those who have a story, and each story, though unique, is ours. And, and so you're here this evening. You've come to camp. I don't know you. You don't know me. I don't know Pastor Steve, right? He doesn't know me. And yet in all reality, I know and you know that we all have come with a story. And those stories are different. We know we were sitting in, the, um, in our room area. There's a lounge area and all the guys and, and couples were sitting there and got to talk with a couple of the different individuals. Just started asking, hey, where are you from? I, I learned Iowa geography a little bit today, Right? I'm not very familiar with Iowa. I know Ankeny, I know Des Moines, right? I know Iowa City. I'm, I'm just not that familiar with Iowa. And so you start to ask questions to be able to just get to know the story. Well, that's really what this author is doing. He's laying this out time and time ag and, ag and, ag and again. And really, again, in a very nonchalant or at least in a non-condemning way, he gives us these different points. There's this famine in the land. The na narrator lays this out of the hardship not just for the characters that he's going to introduce, but for the people themselves. People are doing that which is right in their own eyes, and the land itself will not yield food. And so Lemelnek takes his family, and he goes, and he goes to the, the region of Moab, and he sojourns there in that country. Look there in verse, uh, end of verse 2. He and his wife and his two sons. Make note of this. At the very introduction of his Elimelech's story, we're told Elimelech's name. In, in initially, we're not told the name of his wife, nor are we told the name of his two sons. Now, he does do it soon after, but it's interesting, and again, there's a whole other discussion as to why in the Eastern mind that would have been the case, 
but everything would have initially gone through the husband. But note also this when you study and you see in the text. I don't have time to get into it. But note how all of a sudden later, this man Elimelech will just simply be called a man. And Naomi's name will be put into place. It will transition from Elimelech being the center of the, of the story. And now that he dies, Naomi becomes the center. And what happens is there's Malon and Kilion, and they too will fade into the black. And all that's left is Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. This is the story that's unfolding. And as we think of their story, though we may not be able to relate to the time of the judges and maybe practicality living in Iowa or living in, you know, Prior Lake, Minnesota. And I, it's a Minnesota, right? It's, it's, it's not, it's just the reality is we may not be able to relate on every level, but we understand that there are things that happen circumstantially and there are things that happen relationally in everyone's life but they ought not to define us. That's the point. Because this story, even though titled Ruth, really shouldn't even be titled Ruth. Because if you actually count all of the times in which Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth speak, Ruth speaks the least. Ruth is given the least actually amount of time and, and focus. The focus is actually on Boaz and Naomi more. So I used to argue that this book should actually be called the book of Naomi. Because it starts with Naomi's story and it ends with Naomi's story. And then I changed that. I was like, no, it's not about Naomi either. This is God's story. And yet in God's big story, he takes all of our stories, and obviously as New Testament saints, through Jesus Christ and his gospel, he allows that story to be interwoven both through suffering and hardship, through joy, through sorrow, through loss, to make much of who he is. This is the point. Here within the narrative, he's laying out for you and I, the author is laying out for us that we are not defined by the circumstances of life, but rather we are defined by the God, and obviously as New Testament saints, in Christ Jesus, who have found their identity in the Godhead. And so here's Elimelech. Elimelech is again the focal point at the onset. But soon after, after he's there for some time, and he goes into this country of Moab, the focus shifts off of Elimelech, for Elimelech passes away. Look there in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, verse 3, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. You see that? So all of us, we have a story. But what unfolds in verses 3 through 5 is that our story ultimately fits within God's greater story. Now let me just give you again another little Bible hermeneutical tip. When things or people are described in Scripture, it's not random. Okay, I know that's not profound. But when you read here within the text that they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah, you something should go, ooh, like if we did Bible trivia right now, why does that sound familiar to you? Right? You think of Micah? Though Bethlehem is the least, remember, of all the cities. Like you should be starting to make connections. Because this narrative is being written, some believe that it was writ written uh, during the time of captivity. Other, other people believe that it was written between uh, different periods in, in Israel's history in which they were in bondage. Whenever it was written. What we find within the narrative is by inspiration, all of a sudden, this Bethlehem is not only mentioned that there was a famine in the land, but it's tied to Ephrata, and it's tied to Judah. And for you and I, it may not mean much. But for the people of Israel, they'd go, huh, 
Wait a second. I've heard this before. Grandma talked about this. Bethlehem, Ephratites, Judah. That's connected to the Messiah. Do you see what's going on here? So even though we all have a story, here within the text, we're given this little hint. We're given this little, like, caveat. There's something more going on. And though everything looks so bleak, when we look at it with new eyes, and we look at it with eternal eyes, God gives us a different perspective. His. St. Clair Ferguson says this. I think it's very helpful when he, when as we lay out this point of our story fits within God's greater story. He says, what we see in the narrative sections of the Bible, then, is the way in which God takes up ordinary people into his purposes and uses them in ways inexplicable in terms of the ordinary. That ultimately, at the onset of this uh, story, though it's weighty and you ought to feel the weight of it, if we walk out of this time together this evening going, that is a heavy story. I feel so bad for Naomi. I can't imagine losing my husband. I can't imagine losing my sons. And the weight of the text is upon you, and yet still there's this glimmer of hope. Ephrata, Bethlehem. Judah. Is that, is that what you came to camp to hear, right? You came to camp to hear those three things and that there's so much hope in those three words, right? Ephrata, Judah, Bethlehem. There's a glimmer of hope. Something's happening. But what we actually find within the story of Naomi and her family is she goes from a place of emptiness. She's actually physically hungry. And she leaves the, 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 uh, the nation of Moab to go to a place where she can be physically full. And though she may have food now, there's an emptying going on in a different way, isn't there? This lady, Naomi, loses her husband first. The text then tells us in, in 3 and following that after, uh, Naomi, or, uh, after uh, Elimelech dies, she is left with these two sons. And there's this emptying process happening where she's lost her, her husband, but yet there's still a little glimmer of human hope. She still has her two boys, right? I, I think, again, in the Western mindset, we don't really get that. You know, but in the Eastern mindset, a son is so important. Like, I'm Korean background, and I remember my dad telling me, it's one of my favorite stories that I love to share with my siblings, but uh, I have three of them, or I have two of them, my older sister and my younger brother who's here. And I love, I love to share it because it's just a true story, and I, I love to just retell those true stories. And uh, I remember my mom and my dad, after they were married, my dad told me that they uh, conceived and they had my sister. She's three and a half years older than me. And the first thing that they, she, he's, my dad said to my mom when my sister came out, again, Korean background, so don't, you know, freak out. But uh, he looked at my mother and he said, you will continue to have children until you give me a son. <laughs> okay, I know that really grates against our Western thinking, and I did not say that to my wife at all. <laughs> okay, I'm very, very American. Okay, so... I may look the part, but I'm not, okay? <laughs> so, and my wife is very gracious, as you'll find out this week. But that was the first thing that my, my dad said to my mom. And my mom actually, was, though she didn't like it, she agreed. Because everything was linked to the son. Through the son would be not just a, a future name going forward, but through the son would come stability. In the Korean mind, the oldest sons are the ones who actually provide when their parents get old. So you don't need a 401k. You just need a bunch of boys. 
And as long as you have a bunch of boys, they're supposed to actually, on a monthly basis, not just provide you a home, but actually give you money to go on vacation. So I got four sons. Like, I'm in good shape. I may be a pastor and have nothing, but I got four boys. And there is massive expectation from this, this man upon them, right? You know, in all reality, like, it's just a little maybe funny way of illustrating the importance of a male heir in the Eastern mind. But what we find within the narrative here as we come back to it is that though Naomi has lost her husband in verse 3, he's, she's died. The author then tells us at least she's left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. Again, we could go, what? That's sin. Okay, granted, it is. I'm not negating that. But what I am saying to you, again, the author doesn't condemn it. And be careful if you condemn it and I condemn it. Because if you know the story of Ruth, you know where this is going. Okay? And so within this narrative, we find out that they take these Moabite women, and the name of one is Orpah, and the name of other is Ruth. They live there about 10 years. It's one of the things that makes it hard for us as readers of Scripture, and especially narrative. Because we read these little things, and we just kind of skip by it like it's not that big a deal. But again, let the weight of everything fall upon you right? Time of judges. Every man's doing that which is right in their own eyes. Not only is every man doing that which is in his own eyes, Elimelech leaves and they go to the land of Moab because Bethlehem, the house of bread, has no bread. They're hungry. The father dies. They have these two sons and the two sons take Moabite women and then the text simply just tells us and they were there in the land for 10 years. See, we read it and we just move on. But let the weight of that sink. Because that's not just a factual thing, right? You've got a lot of young people here. When you're reading your Bible, don't just read it. I've got to read a chapter a day or my mom's going to kill me, right? Read the Bible. It's awesome. And as you read it, all of a sudden you're going to come across the 10 years go by and you're going to geek out about 10 years. What are you going to geek out about 10 years? You're going to geek out because you're going to start to realize, wait a second, why would the author say 10 years? Why is that even significant? It's significant for multiple reasons. And one of the reasons is that it tells you that they're no longer sojourning, they're abiding. That's their land. But it also tells us something else. It tells us that for 10 years, Malon and Kilion, who married Orpah and Ruth, had no heirs. There's no children. Because if, it, if there was, the story would have told us. But 10 years passed, and, and there's no children. There's no heir. And to the Jew, again, the weight of the text would crush them. We read it, and we're like, well, okay, next. wonder when the free popcorn is going to happen. <laughs> again, again don't, be, don't forget, we all have a story, but all of our stories fit within God's story. And just like you don't want min- someone else to minimize your story, don't minimize theirs. For God, by inspiration, has placed it there for his intended purposes and for your good and for mine. And this is really what's unfolding. They lived there, again, for 10 years. And then in verse 5, it says that both Malon and Kilion died. It's the final blow. See, Naomi's going to say a bunch of stuff that we always read, and we're like, I can't believe Naomi would say that. The Almighty's hand is against me. I would never say that. Be careful. Here's a woman who is brought down so low that she's crushed. The reader is left with no hope. 
There's no father, there's no sons, and there's no heirs. And here, here they are, three widows in a foreign land. Do you feel it? I hope you feel the weight of it even this evening. One author says that the family of Elimelech teeters on annihilation. They're about to be obliterated. You see the linguistical structure in verse 3. Speaking of Elimelech, he dies. She was left then. These took, speaking of the sons in verse 4, they lived, they both died in verse 5. And ultimately at the end of the text it says, so that the woman was left without. The dreams and aspirations of Elimelech, Naomi, or any of us is not the focus really even of the text. The point of the text is that this God who is at work in the lives of his people is doing it for their intended good, but he's also doing it for his ultimate purposes and for his glory. It's easy for us to say it, isn't it? In the midst of hardship to go, God's doing something bigger. But in all reality, what do you and I want? We want him to resolve that thing or that person or that circumstance so that it would stop bringing me pain. In Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon writes it in this manner. He speaks of the Lord and he says that he brings hardships and it's actually better to the go, go to the house of mourning than to the go, go to the house of feasting. And in verse, chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Isn't that interesting? Because you wouldn't think that that would be the verse. You would think, consider the works of God. Consider how he takes crooked things and makes them straight. That's what we want, right? But the text doesn't say that. In Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon says, consider the works of God. And look at what he does. He takes straight things and he bends them. And who can unbend it? And the answer is no one. In Psalm 90, Moses uses the same picture and he says, our lives are filled with toil and trouble. And though, again, you're here at family camp and you're here to have a good time and be back with family and people who are like family because you've been going to camp for like 50 years together or whatever, right? It's glorious. But even though that's going on, there's other stuff going on. Stuff that you left at home. Stuff that's going on in your own relationships and turmoil. And if you focus on that stuff, if you focus on the relationships and the brokenness and the times in which God is bent and made things crooked, you will get so discouraged. And you will, you will want to give up and you will go the way of the world. But if by God's kindness... You will see that he in his kindness has taken the straight thing and made it crooked so that you would consider him. That's the narrative of Ruth. For he's not interested in just redeeming Naomi. He is not just interested in redeeming Ruth and Boaz as we will see. But this God is interested in using ordinary people who are like you and me. You and I would hang out with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. We would, wouldn't, he? wouldn't we? Like, we'd be out there on the lake with them. We'd be, like, playing, like, a, wow, I'm beanbag toss with them. Like, they're our kind of people. We'd share hurts with them. We'd talk about life with them. But in all of this, the story is not about the human story, though it is a human story. It's about God who's at work. A God who allows our lives to be marked with pain. And yet, 
He never leaves us as his children to walk through that pain alone. If you're a fan of Tolkien, and I'm not talking the movies, I'm talking the books, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, actually it's in The Two Towers, where Sam says to Mr. Frodo, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, he says, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness, must pass. Isn't that the narrative of Scripture? That in the midst of our brokenness, God is going to take us and form us into the image of the Son through that hurt and pain, but use that difficulty to fix our eyes upon not only God, but His purposes, and allow our story to fit within His story so that you and I don't waste our lives. That's the narrative of the book of Ruth as we begin. One author says that Naomi is lost. Further, she faces her declining years with no children to take care of her and no grandchildren to cheer her spirits. Right? Grandparents, you get that, right? Okay. The Eastern mentality is not just future heir, but security and stability that children bring to the family. Again, in our Western mind, I don't think we get it. But the weight of it is starting to compound as we get into this narrative. Lewis says this. He says, we can, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being uh, attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks uh, in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Spurgeon says it this way when we speak of many are the afflictions of the righteous. He says, Scripture does not flatter us like the storybooks with the idea that goodness will secure us from trouble. On the contrary, we again and again are warned to expect tribulation while we are in this body. He goes on and says, but the Lord will deliver them out of all of it. The same Lord who sends the affliction will also recall them when his design is accomplished. When, but he will never allow the fiercest of them to rend and devour his beloved. That's really the point. The point of the narrative of Ruth is that God desires to use these things to have us consider not just him, but his works, what he's doing. And when we get it, though we don't get why he's given that pain in that moment, we can rejoice in the God who allows our lives to be scathed at times, but never leaves us alone. And what I'd like to do as we end, because I don't want to end there, because it's not a good place in the text to end. I want to read verse 6. I want to hint at something, and then we'll be done for this evening. After all of this happens, and there's a descent of loss of food, to loss of Elimelech, to loss of Malon and Kilion and future heirs, verse 6 says this, Then... She arose, speaking of Naomi, with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. Why? Why did she leave? Why didn't she stay? It says, for she had heard, even in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. <gasps> Remember when you were a kid? And that's probably happening right now. And the stinking teacher Am I, as a pastor, preacher, allowed to say that? But takes the little missionary story, you know what I'm talking about, and they read the Monday story. 
And they go, and then he was up in the tree, and the tiger was going to eat him, and you'll have to come back tomorrow. <laughs> That's what the text is doing. It's awesome. It is unbelievable what's going on here in the Word. You are finding interwoven into the broken story of these three women is a steadfast God who during the time of the judges, nothing good's happening, right? But something is. Ruth's story is fit in that story. When they leave the house of bread that has no bread to go to Moab, Ruth loses everything. And while she's in the field, after she's lost everything, her sons, her husband, and she has these two daughter-in-laws, she hears that the Lord, the living 